0: Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Amen. Let's turn now to Romans 5. All right, so I divided the first five verses into 2 two sermons, we're going to start at verse 1 for context, get our running start here. Read verses 1 through 5, and our sermon will start at verse 3 today. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. You may be seated. There's a recruiting slogan for the U.S. Marines that you may have heard, that pain is weakness leaving the body. It's um, very similar. There's also the catchphrase that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And um, when you start going to the gym for about three weeks next year, uh, it's just about as, la- as long as your New Year's resolution will last, um, that might be true. That kind of pain from pushing your body to its limits and seeing those limits expand through that mental and physical pain Um, That is, we'll say, partly true. But those sayings don't really tell the whole story about suffering, right? Because you know, or at least you have um, seen in other people's lives, if you haven't yet in your own, a different kind of suffering, a kind of suffering, a kind of pain or heartache that's so severe, that's so destructive, uh, that the natural consequence of that uh, is not greater strength at all. It's these very deep wounds, a kind of chronic weakness, a kind of brokenness that doesn't seem fixable. And so those catchphrases about pain making us stronger can kind of start to ring false at that point with that kind of suffering because things that don't kill you really can leave you weaker, not stronger. And so sometimes we can get to the point um, where that pain is all that we can see anymore and there's no end in sight to it. We don't see anything good coming out of it and we get very discouraged. We can become hopeless without hope I want to suggest to you this morning, though, that that also is a one-sided perspective that we can fall into. That also comes short of telling the whole story about your pain and your weakness and your sorrow. A few weeks ago, we looked at Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, where Paul explains that... Um, <coughs> God's declaration that you're righteous in Christ, it's being justified by faith, that that declaration transforms your relationship with God through Christ. We have peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And Paul says that you have three things as a direct result of your justification by faith, these three fruits of justification. That's peace with God, Access into grace and hope of the glory of God. So That was last time. Now, as we move on into verses 3 through 5, Paul is explaining something new here. In addition, he says that that hope that he's just mentioned in verse 2, that hope holds. It holds right through the most painful experiences that you can endure as a Christian. It doesn't go away In fact, what he's claiming here is that those painful experiences actually serve in God's plan to fortify, to build up your hope, not to take it away. I want to see how Paul explains all of this in three parts this morning, which we are going to call, first, hope-challenged, second, hope-reinforced, and then hope confirmed. So hope challenged, hope reinforced, and hope confirmed. All right, so first hope challenged. At the beginning of verse 3, Paul is sort of anticipating a major objection to what he's just said in verses 1 through 2. So he's just said that when you've been justified by faith, you're able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But you can imagine somebody reading this letter and saying... And maybe you'd actually say this yourself. You'd look at that and you say, well, wait a minute. You can say that. You can say, I can now rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But all of the evidence in my life, my experience right now, the things that I'm actually going through, the pain that I'm experiencing maybe in my relationships, in my frustrations and disappointments with my life, in my, in my body, physical pain... All of this doesn't seem very glorious. It doesn't feel very glorious right now. There's all this brokenness all around me and my family, among my friends, not to mention around the world. There's this brokenness in me as well. There's grief, there's terrible disappointment, and sometimes my body just hurts and it won't stop hurting. So how does this mesh, Paul, with this glory that you're saying I'm supposed to have as a Christian? Now, there's a kind of simplistic answer that um, might come to mind for you first. You might say, okay, well, I think I, I guess I get what you must be saying. It must be there's, there's this future glory, and I'm just supposed to wait for it because it's, it's coming one day. I should kind of take a, a philosophical attitude towards life, right? And just know, know, just know that no matter how bad things get now... That one day they will get better. That is what we summarize when we say, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Many people, I think, kind of assume that that's the Christian way to deal with suffering. Just think, this too shall pass. I'm going to get through it and one day God will give me something better. But is that what Paul says here? Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now rejoicing, you have to understand, is not only the opposite of despair. Rejoicing is also the opposite of resignation. It's the opposite of just Checking out. It's the opposite of just trying to put mind over matter. It's the opposite of just pretending the problem's not there or just merely waiting for it to go away. I'll tell you something else. Rejoicing is the opposite of. Rejoicing is also the opposite of self-pity. It's the opposite of self-pity. Paul is not commiserating with you here. He's not inviting you into a pity party He's not inviting you to uh, just sort of catalog all your sufferings and and have kind of a that, those one-upsmanship contests we sometimes get into. Oh yeah, that's really bad. Well, let me tell you about how bad my life is, and and then just kind of uh, getting down there with you and saying, Ah, oh, that's really tough, man. I feel your pain. He could have done that. That's not what he says either. Let's just wallow, wallow in this for a while together. Paul doesn't do any of that. He doesn't say to rejoice in spite of your sufferings. He says to rejoice in your sufferings. There's a, a big difference there. And I mean, we have to ask, can, can you believe that? Um, can you imagine yourself really rejoicing in your sufferings? Isn't that kind of the opposite of the normal response to bad things happening? Us. How are we supposed to actually do this? You might think, well, I'm supposed to read Paul's not being realistic here. In fact, maybe he seems to you to be a little callous. We want to clarify some things here. For one thing, Paul is not saying here that suffering is good in itself. He's not saying that you should seek it out. Oh, yeah, it hurts so good. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Oh, no, the more pain, the better. Um, He's also not saying, like some worldviews would say, he's not saying, oh, well, you know, it isn't It isn't actually real. It isn't actually real. It's all just in your head. What a, what a destructive thing. And you may have had somebody imply this to you before when when there was some pain you were experiencing that other people didn't really understand and they seemed to be implying. Well, maybe it's just your imagination. Maybe it's just in your head. Some people feel like, boy, if only I had Broken in an arm and had a cast, or if only I were bleeding profusely, people would understand my pain. But because it's all something people can't see, they start to think that I'm imagining it, and I know I'm not imagining it. No, Paul is not saying that your pain is imaginary. It's not saying that it isn't real or that it's an illusion. Of all people, in fact, of all people, the Apostle Paul knew that pain is real because Paul himself knew excruciating pain In his body, in his relationships, and in his inner life. So, Paul is not denying suffering here. That's what's so extraordinary about this. This is what is so unlike what any other philosophy or religion can say about suffering. Paul gets your suffering here, God gets your suffering. Um, So, what we were talking about last week from Hebrews, when we talked about how Christ has entered into your suffering. the Bible acknowledges your suffering as suffering, as real excruciating pain in your body, in your heart, and this is unlike those worldviews that would dismiss it as imaginary or an illusion. And, and, at the very same moment, God is also saying here, you can rejoice, you can exalt in that very suffering. See, Paul realizes that your suffering seems to threaten your hope, to contradict it. How can they both be true at the same time? And it's true, the suffering you experience does present a great challenge to your hope in Christ. How can they coexist? How can they go together? How can I hope in the glory of God? How can I really believe I actually have peace with God and access into his grace when it really, really hurts all the time? When my body feels like it's falling apart, and my relationships I can see are falling apart, how can these things be true at the same time? And Paul's answer is this. We don't just rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul sees and acknowledges this fact of hope challenged. Hope challenged by suffering. And then goes on to turn that challenge completely on its head. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of the passage. We've left a lot yet to be explained, right? You could you could respond to Paul, Paul, you can't just say that. What do you mean we rejoice in our sufferings? That doesn't even make sense. It sounds absurd. Just, just saying that doesn't make it so. Uh, but it's important that Paul does not just assert this. He goes on to explain how. He tells us how God's grace in Christ through the Holy Spirit creates this way for your experience of suffering to change, to be different from the way you would experience it apart from Jesus. And that brings us to the second point, which is hope reinforced. Hope reinforced. So Paul traces here exactly how it is that suffering becomes something to rejoice in. It reinforces your hope by producing endurance, which results in a tested and proven godly character. So first he says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Uh, Some of you might remember the old King James way of putting this, that tribulation worketh patience. You heard that? Tribulation worketh patience. Patience, endurance. uh, We might also say, Fortitude or steadfastness or perseverance. Suffering produces endurance. And this word endurance is getting at the ability to hold up, to bear up right in the middle of a hard experience, to keep on keeping on. So, to endure means. Um, it's, a, it's a character quality that actually can only exist as a result of the experience of suffering. That's the only way you can get it. That's the only way you can get endurance. Without suffering, there can be no such thing as endurance because there's nothing to endure. right? And so you might think, well, maybe Paul is just saying, after all, that pain is weakness leaving the body, that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Are we back to where we started? Well, no, because Paul's not talking just about natural consequences here. He's not just talking about working out at the gym and feeling that muscle pain and and having your muscles get stronger, or running longer and longer distances, faster and faster until you can run a marathon. You know That's the way this works in the natural world and just kind of the common sense of, of life. And there's an analogy there. These are good natural analogies for what Paul's talking about, but he's talking about something much more than that something supernatural. He's talking about something that extends even to those more destructive types of suffering that leave you weaker in your body, your mind, your spirit. See, for those kinds of suffering, often the the natural result that people experience is not something good, something bad. Brokenness, that it can produce anger, um, bitterness, um, maybe for some people um, just learning to be more crafty, get what they want in different ways. So for some people it's this hardened detachment, these harmful ways of coping with suffering that people go through when they've experienced a great deal of pain. That's what comes naturally to us. But see, for a Christian... The Holy Spirit is at work supernaturally to produce something different. A supernatural character quality of endurance. Endurance that comes from him. So that instead of weakening you, instead of hardening you, instead of embittering you and making you just angry or detached, instead of destroying you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, suffering is able to make you stronger inwardly, not necessarily as a natural consequence, but through his supernatural power. Okay, so if suffering produces endurance, Paul goes on to say that endurance then produces character. Yeah. Let's talk about character then. This word character is closely related in Greek to the word for testing. So another translation calls it proven character. Character. That's a good way of elaborating on what it means. That idea of proof, something tested, tried, and proven, that's, that's central to what Paul's talking about here. So when a bridge is being inspected, my brother-in-law is a structural engineer. He works on bridges. Um, when, when, a, when a bridge is being inspected, the engineers will sometimes perform what's called a load test on it, a load test. And so the bridge can look like it's in great shape, Uh, But it needs to be tested. It needs to be proven. And so by loading it up with lots and lots of weight, the engineers can prove that it really is strong enough and safe enough for traffic, for real people to cross it uh, during rush hour. So when a Christian endures suffering, truly endures it in that sense that suffering produces, not anger, not bitterness, not hardness, but that real Christian spirit wrought Endurance. When that happens, the outcome of that whole process is that that Christian's character is proven. It is proven. Another common metaphor for this in the Bible is the testing of precious metals. You're familiar with this? Uh, Testing the metal by melting it. Uh, Job expressed his confidence that when God has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And that's what God is promising here, that when he has tried you, you will come forth as gold. Gold, as what you really are by the grace of God, what the Holy Spirit has made you to be through this process of suffering that has formed this endurance in your heart by God's power. Your character has been proven. It's the same thing Peter's getting at in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says that, yeah, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. That same idea of testing. That tested genuineness of your faith, not just genuineness on paper, but tested, proven genuineness, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is the end that Paul's driving toward here. Praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Same as Peter in his letter. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and character produces hope. Now, it's the second time in this beginning of this chapter that Paul's mentioned, this hope. This hope in verse 4 is the same hope that he mentioned in verse 2. It's the same hope. Paul's point here is, is that suffering in the Christian life begins and ends in hope. In fact, it only ends in hope because it begins with hope in the first place. We've been justified by faith in Christ. That's the baseline. And so, as a result of that, we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God in the first place. Not just that, he goes on, we also rejoice in our sufferings... Because ultimately our sufferings reinforce that hope that we started with. The hope that we started with helps us to endure through the suffering and through that suffering God reinforces the hope from the beginning. Suffering challenges your hope but it does not threaten your hope. It reinforces it. That's why the second point is hope reinforced. Hope reinforced. God strengthens your hope by strengthening you. By proving your character under that divine stress test. So that in the end, you can say, yes, yes, I do have hope of the glory of God in Christ. And yes, the Christian life is really, really hard. But the Holy Spirit is giving to me endurance and he is proving to me that every one of his promises are true. And that through these hard things, he is shaping me to be more like Christ. So I can be more confident that in the end, he will embrace me in glory with Christ. And so we come to the third point then, which is hope confirmed. And there's a caution that I want to give you here. You've heard now that suffering and endurance prove your character, and so reinforce your hope. But that does not mean, in fact, you must never think that, therefore, my hope depends on, rests on my character, on my ability to stand up under suffering. So this whole idea of God proving your character through suffering—that that is designed to be this encouraging evidence that will strengthen and reinforce your hope. But but that that godly character produced by suffering—that that is never ever going to be the source of your hope. In other words, you're not justified by your suffering. You're not justified by your suffering, and that's the way our thinking can get twisted. We can think, by suffering, I am atoning for all the bad things I've done. You know, a lot of people can think about their lives that way. I've sinned, and so now I guess God is making me suffer to make up for it. That is not the gospel. That is absolutely contrary to the word of God. God never will make you suffer to make up for your sin, to atone for the things you've done. Only Christ can do that. Christ alone has suffered in your place and on your behalf for you to be forgiven of your sins. That's not the point of the suffering that God brings into your life. You're not justified by your suffering. No, my hope is built on nothing less than what? Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. God does not hold your sin against you. It has all been placed on Christ. And that's very good news. Because after all, sometimes under the stress of suffering, we not only bend, we break under it sometimes. Our flesh is weak. Our character hasn't been perfected yet. And there will be times when your suffering seems to prove nothing but how sinful you are. Oh, I responded that way again to the littlest thing, the smallest inconvenience. And out comes this rage and bitterness from our hearts and these harsh words to the, People that we love. So if your hope depends on your character, well, then you have no hope. And that will put you to shame every time. But Paul says in verse 5 that the kind of hope he's talking about does not put us to shame. Why? Because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on you. Our character is not what is bearing that weight because it cannot bear that weight. Why does hope not put us to shame? It's because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, the guarantee of your hope is the almighty, steady, unchanging, persistent, gracious, generous, merciful, compassionate, undeserved love of God. And that love, by the way, is not something that God is there measuring out with a teaspoon. You know, when you take the baking powder and you take it and you smooth it. Okay, we'll make sure we only get only a teaspoon of love for this one. No, this is something that God has taken the bucket, He has poured it into your heart. Every last bit of it, it's gushing over you. God is loving you without restraint. In Isaiah forty three we read earlier that the one who created and formed Israel, he says, I have called you by name. You are mine. And so that is why he says that when they go through the waters and the rivers and the fire, they will not ultimately harm they will not ultimately be harmed or destroyed by that suffering. Why? First, because of who he is. I am the Lord your God, the holy one of Israel. And second, it's because That holy, almighty God loves you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, God says. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that God loves you? Many Christians really struggle to believe this, especially when life is very hard and painful because your experience seems on the surface to contradict that promise. God is saying he loves me But why is all this happening to me then? How can I really know that God loves me? Well, there are a couple answers to that. Next time, the next couple of verses, Paul's going to point us to the death of Jesus as an assurance of God's love. I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but he's going to say you can know for sure that God loves you because while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's how you can know. But in verse 5 here, he points us to something different, something that might not occur to you quite as um, often. He points you here to the third person of the Trinity, to the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 says, who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided, chapter 8 will say, we suffer with him so that we may be also glorified with him. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption who persuades you, seals to you, cries out from within you regarding that reality, that certainty that you are God's beloved child. We saw that last week, last Sunday night from Galatians 4. The Holy Spirit gives you that assurance that the Lord Jesus hasn't left you alone. He hasn't orphaned us in this world. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He told his disciples in John. And how did he do that? He did that by sending, by pouring out his spirit from heaven upon his church. It's not as though Jesus went away into heaven and gave you the Bible and said, Okay, well, while I'm gone, you just keep reading this. You're basically on your own until the second coming. But uh, just make sure to to keep obeying what this book says and, and believe the promises in it because they'll come true one day. You've got to wait for all these things to come true. No, the Holy Spirit's personal presence is with you now, pouring in this living moment that love of God into your heart, gently persuading you through the word of God that you are God's child, that God does love you, that he is with you now in real time, a person indwelling you, Constantly with you, beside you, for you, on your side, comforting you, applying God's word to your heart, like like taking it like a bandage and putting it on the spot that hurts so it can be healed. The Holy Spirit, day by day, is opening your understanding of your suffering, opening your understanding of God's purpose in your painful experiences. And reassuring you of the love of God in the middle of them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We're not alone. God has not abandoned us to experience all these hard things all by ourselves. And notice, this is important, notice that the Holy Spirit is not a reward it's sort of awarded to us at the end of our patient endurance. Well, if you endure enough suffering and you're patient enough, then God will say, okay, now you can have the Holy Spirit. No, Paul says the Holy Spirit has been given to us at the outset. It's the Holy Spirit who is personally supervising this whole story of your transformation. The whole process of your suffering, producing endurance, shaping in you the proven character that provides evidence for your hope. The Holy Spirit is doing that. He's personally involved every step of the way. It's not just something he set in motion and walked away. When you pass through the waters and the rivers and the fire, he is there with you in those experiences. So to go back to where we start, let's ask those questions again. Is pain just weakness leaving the body? Is that true? Is it really true that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? And That conventional wisdom works somewhat for certain kinds of suffering and certain kinds of growth But it's not even close to an answer for the deepest, most painful kinds of suffering that tear at our hearts. And that is because those common sense ideas are missing. Two very important things that Christ provides for Christians to suffer in a different way from anyone else and with a different outcome than for anyone else. Those two things are hope and the Holy Spirit. Your suffering begins and ends with hope because you've been justified by faith and you've been given the Holy Spirit. You have peace with God, not because of what you have done for him, but because of what he has done for you in Christ. And that's where your hope starts. And that reality does not change when suffering comes, when the hardest parts of life are standing in your path. No, that hope, rather, provides a foundation, a rock to stand on to carry you through the experience of those hard things in a different way. So you're not swept away by them, but you have a place to stand. And when you suffer as a justified child of God who has peace with God once and for all, what the Holy Spirit does is he transforms everything about that experience, the hardest parts of life. He transforms your suffering And he transforms you. He assures you of God's abundant love for you. And he confirms to you, even even through the valley of the shadow of death, that your hope will not put you to shame because God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. He's given to you that is a different and better way to go through life's hardest moments. Not in denial, not in self-pity, not in stoical resignation, but in a Christ-focused, spirit-wrought hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these things are easy to say difficult sometimes to believe and to take to heart. God, we ask that you would give us faith to receive these promises, understanding, really, to grasp what you're teaching us here. And more than that, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us the living experience of this. Help us to take it to heart and live it out when it really matters, to stand on this rock of your promises and to be comforted, consoled, helped, and healed when it really counts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.